Let us all stand in the honor of the word of the Lord. Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke 16, verses 1 to 13. Let's all read together in the count of 1, 2, and 3. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges who were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking my management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commanded the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. Look at you guys. In the last day of the year, and you are here. So proud of you. I can tell that you have given up on the fireworks, but don't worry, we will experience the fireworks of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Tonight, I want to talk about everyone's favorite topic. Okay, if you know what my sermon topic is, let's shout out in count of three. One, two, three. Money, right? Now, I don't know if you can tell or not, but I was being sarcastic, actually. How many of you guys like money? Can I see your hand? If you say you like money, just be honest with me. You like money. Like, if you raise your hand, just, this is my bank account. Just please transfer to me. I will handle your money for you. But let me be very honest before I start, because for many years, you know this, some of you know, I avoided talking about money in church. Why? Because you know why. Because I have seen for myself how it's been abused in a lot of churches, right? Because we see how many uh, mega church pastors, they encourage people to give to the church, and then they abuse the church money to what? Like to buy private jets, to buy mansions, to buy 10 Mercedes, etc. And because of this tendency, what happened was I avoided talking about money. Because I wanted to get rid of the misconception that people have, you know, the church just want more money. All the church talk about is money, money, money. But then as I grow in my walk with God, I realize that I cannot be a faithful pastor if I don't talk about money. Why? 
Because Jesus talked a lot about money. Do you know that Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined? Do you know that Jesus talked more about money than he did about prayer and faith? Almost half of Jesus' parables are talking about money. See, if I preach on money as often as Jesus, let me tell you, it will be every third sermon. Can you imagine that? Every third sermon, I'll be talking about money. Praise God, I'm not Jesus, right? This is actually the first sermon on money I preached this year. In fact, this is the first sermon on money that I preached, specifically on money, in the last four years. Think about it. If Jesus preached money every third sermon, I preach one every three years. That's not healthy, okay? And, and that's why I chose this Sunday because I realized, okay, we're lacking on this. I need to talk about money. And here's why it's very important to talk about money in church. Because there are many areas of Christian life that we can fake. You can fake ministry easily. You can fake Bible knowledge. You can fake holiness. You can look as if you're holy in front of other people. But do you know what you can't fake? You can't fake money. Why? Because your bank account will testify. You cannot fake money because your bank account will tell you whether you've been faithful with the way you use money or not. See, one preacher said, if you want to really know what's in your heart, don't look at what you do on Sunday. No, no. Look at your bank account. Because your bank statement is a great indicator where your heart is. It reflects where your time, your goals, your priorities, and your commitment are. So you can say to me, to all the leaders, to your friend, oh, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. You can say that 10 times a day. But if your bank account disagrees with you, you don't. One of the greatest indicators of true Christians is actually how they use their money. But at the same time, one of the biggest sin blind spots in the life of creation, do you know what that is? Money. See, in regards to money, you and I, we only have two choices, okay? This is our choices. We either master our money and use it for the glory of God, or money will master us for our destruction. That's it. You only have two choices. There's nothing in the middle. Now, and our passage for tonight, I, know, I don't know, if you grew up in church, you know this passage, right? This is a strange parable. This is probably one of Jesus' most controversial parables. Like, you know, I'm, I've been a pastor for like 11, 12 years now, and I received questions on these parables more than any other Jesus' parables combined. This parable, okay? In fact, if you, if you look at the parable, the meaning is very straightforward. Like, it's not complicated. The meaning is very straightforward. It's not hard to understand. But the story is very provocative, okay? But let me tell you what happened here. This parable is directed specifically to the disciples, not the public. So this is Jesus' word specifically for the people who have decided to follow Jesus. And at the same time, people who have yet to follow Jesus, not disciples, they get to eavesdrop. So if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not a Christian and you hear this message, let me tell you, this is not for you. This is for us who have said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But what the good thing about it is you can eavesdrop and you can actually listen how Christians should think about money because it is radically different from what you might think about money because Jesus essentially is asking the disciple this question. Simple question. Are you a good steward? 
And if we get what Jesus is saying in this parable, if we understand what it means to be a steward, let me tell you, it will transform our life radically. And that is why as we close 2023, as we welcome 2024, I want to talk about this because I want you to be able to reflect what's, how does my financial tell me about how I live my 2023 and how do I need, what do I need to change in order for me to enter 2024? Because 2024, I church said this is the year of kingdom influence. How can I use my money for the sake of kingdom influence? Okay, let's look at it together as usual. I have three points for my sermon. Our role, our job description, and our master. You ready? You ready to learn about money? And just let me tell you, I might offend a lot of you tonight, but that's okay. Because after this, I'm taking sabbatical for the next one month. Okay. So you will not see me preach for the next one month. Okay, let's, look at, let's start with number one, our role, first one to three. He also said to the disciple, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, so, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, well, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to back. Like, Jesus is a master storyteller. And then he used parable to make his point. Can the parable go like this? Very interesting. So there's a rich man who entrusts all his riches to a manager. And the job of this manager is actually to take care of his possession and to make sure that the rich man makes more money. Okay, today we might call him a financial planner. The problem is, rather than making money, the manager is losing money. He's wasting the rich man's wealth. So when the rich man hears the report, he's not happy. He's like, you know, come and see me. Bring me the book. I want to see. And when the rich man sees the book and sees all the deficit in the book, he's really upset. So he gives the managers two weeks' notice. So the manager is basically fired, but he has two weeks to leave the job, right? So he goes home, and on his way home, he said to himself, man, I'm in trouble. What am I going to do now? Because I'm fired from my job, and I've gotten used to drink $7 latte and flying in business class. There's no way I can go back to Nespresso and fly in economy class. And I've been working as a financial planner all my life. There's no way I can work in Mickey D's now. No way. And I'm ashamed to back. What am I going to do? And then he has this brilliant idea, verse 4 to 7. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debts one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 100, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. And let me tell you, this guy's brilliant. Because he called up some of his boss clients who still owe his boss a lot of money. He meets one of them and says, hey, how much do you owe my boss? 100 measure of oil? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write you another bill that say you only owe him 50. So the managers cut the debt by how much? 50%. And let me tell you, 100 measures of oil are equivalent to about $120,000 today. 
That means the debt is cut off by $60,000. The debtor must be over the moon, right? And then the manager met another client and he said, okay, how much do you owe my boss? A hundred measure of wheat? I tell you what, I'm going to give you 20% discount and let's make it 80. Hundred measure of wheat are equivalent to $300,000 today. So the debt is cut to $240,000. The debtor must be very happy with the manager right now, right? So this is what the, the manager he called different people who owe his boss money, and he write off some of their debt. He saved them a lot of money. And here's what I know about all of us. We love anything or anyone that helps us save money, right? Especially a lot of money. Now, can you see what the manager did? He did his boss clients a huge favor. So what? So that they may feel indebted to him. So maybe, I'm assuming, as he right off the debt, maybe he's smiling and, you know, he winked at them and say, hey, don't forget, we saved you a lot of money today. Because when he's out of the job, he will call them and say, hey, do you remember what I did for you? Can I stay in your house for the next two years for free? That is his plan. What a scheme. Brilliant strategy to ensure his future. He uses his boss' money to win the heart of the people. But look at what happened next. This is the shocking part. Verse 8a. The master commanded this honest manager for his shrewdness. And this is the point of the controversy. Can we agree that what the manager did is wrong? Right? Because he's being dishonest with his boss' money. And instead of being condemned, his boss commanded him. So the boss find out about what the manager did and said, this guy's legit. This guy's good. It does not make any sense. Because today we call this a financial fraud. And it is illegal to do so. So listen. If your boss give you a two-week notice... Do not, I repeat, do not start calling people who owe money to your company and cut off their debts. And you say like, that's what the Bible say. No, no, that is not the point of the parable. Your boss will not praise you for it. You will go to jail. So why? Why is the dishonest manager being praised? Here's why. The boss doesn't approve of the manager's action, but he praises the manager for his shrewdness in thinking ahead and planning for his future. He doesn't praise the manager for messing with his money, but he praises his manager for thinking smart. Okay, let's stop here and let me show you how the parables speak to all of us. Because it's very clear the master in the parable represents God and we are the manager. See, whether we want to admit it or not, here's the reality. Everything we have right now is not ours. It belongs to God. God owns everything. We own nothing. We do not own our house. We do not own our car. We do not own our clothes. We do not even own our toothbrush. We do not even own our body. Everything we have belongs to God. Like if you don't believe me, this is what David said. Okay? In Psalm 24 verse 1, he said, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, which means David is telling us 
There is nothing in this universe that God cannot rightly claim it's mine. Everything belongs to God. But then God kindly and graciously trusted us with His riches. So we are steward of His riches. Do you know what a steward is? A steward is a person who manages something that belongs to someone else. It means that we are not the owners of everything we have. We are the managers. Will Smith, you guys know Will Smith? One day he was being interviewed, right? And the interviewer asked, Will, when did your kids learn that they were rich? And I love his answer. Okay? Will Smith being Will Smith, he says, let me stop you right there. I'm rich. My kids ain't. I let them use some of my money, but it ain't theirs. It's mine. Same thing with us and God. Whatever we have, God gave it to us, and He has a purpose for it. And here's the thing. One day, you and I will have to stand before God to give an account of what we do with what God has given us. And if we waste His possessions, He will hold us accountable. So it's a point of reflection that I want you to really think about as we close the year. His simple reflection. Do you see everything you have as fundamentally yours or God's? Come on, let's be honest. Okay? I know you know the right answer. What's the right answer? God! But let's be honest. Who owns your resources? Because knowing who owns your resources makes all the difference. Because if you see it as yours, you will ask, you know, how much of my money should I give to God? But if you see it as God, you will ask God, what does you want to do with your money? So the question is not, God, what do you want me to do with my money? The question is, God, what do you want me to do with your money? The way we think about our possession is different if we know we are not owners but stewards. Because when you know that you're stewards, you understand that that means I can't just do anything I want with my money because it's not mine. There's nothing that I can rightly claim it is mine. Nothing. But some of you might say, but yours. I am the one who works 70 hours a week to earn this money. I am the one who sweat blood in order to have all these possessions. That's true. But let me ask you a few questions. Who gave you the brain to think? Who gave you the skill to do your work? Who gave you the job that you have? Who gave you the health? Who gave you the opportunity? Who allowed you to be where you are today? Have you ever considered how different your life would look like if you were born in a jungle of Himalaya? Everything you have is given by God. You do not own any of it. Now, before we move on to my second point, let me speak to the parents here. Because I know I know this is a real struggle for every parent. Parents, everything you have belongs to God. Amen? Parents, everything you have belongs to God. Amen? Including your children. Pastor Sam say amen. We can say amen. Here's my question. Is it true? Because here's what I know about every parent. You love your children so much. 
Right, parents? Because here's the thing about them, right? You invested years in raising them. I mean, you and your husband and your wife, you know, you corporate, you work together to make this baby, right? This is joint project, your joint project. And, and then you spend what? So many, many years raising them. You spend countless money and also countless bucket of tears in raising them. You make so much sacrifice for them. And you want what's best for them. Amen. They are so precious to you. I get that. But listen, parents, never ever forget they are not yours. You are simply stewards of God's gift. And one day you have to stand before God and be accountable on how you raise your children. Are you raising your children for God and God's glory or are you raising them for your own wants, desire, and glory? See, parents, God has entrusted you with children not for you to control them or let them whatever they, do whatever they want, but listen, for you to actually direct them to the giver and let God direct them however He wants. Because you are not the owner of your children. God is. Which means you must learn to let Go of your children and put them in God's hand. Your role is to point them to God. Your role is to teach them in the Word of God. But then you have to be able to trust God to direct them and lead them even though it might be different from what you want from them. Because they're not yours. One prominent Christian family counselor was asked this question. Very, very profound question. The question is this. At what age should parents learn to let go of their children? Okay, some of you think like, at what age should parents learn to let go of their children? See answer. From the moment they were born. Why so early? Because they were not yours from the very beginning. See, if you wait until your children grew up, before you learn to let go of them, let me tell you, it will be too late. It will be extremely hard. That's why you have to learn. From the very moment they were born, you have to continue to remind yourself, these kids of mine are not mine. They are God's gift to me. I am called to steward God's gift. Which means everything you have comes from God. Everything you have belongs to God. And everything you have is for God's glory. Now, so far it's clear. So this is the point of the parable, that our role, we're actually manager, we're actually steward of God's gift. Okay, then let's get second point. What is our job description then? Verse 8b to verse 9. For the son of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it falls, they may receive you into eternal dwelling. Okay, now... This is the important part, okay? Don't, don't lose focus because this is the point of the parable. <laughs> Jesus is not saying it's okay for you to cheat people. He's not saying that. He's not telling us it's okay for us to be dishonest. No, 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 no. Because Jesus is giving example how clever people of this world are when they act for their own best interests. What the dishonest manager is praised for, not for his unrighteous deed, no, 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 but for his shrewdness. To be shrewd means to act with sharp discernment. It is to be clever. And this is the key to the parable. 
Jesus is making a comparison between the way man, the manager prepare for unemployment with the way Christian ought to prepare for eternity. Jesus is saying like this, the people of this world are way more clever in planning for their future than Christian in planning for their eternal future with God. If only Christian think and plan about their eternal future more. In other words, this is a rebuke to Christian. Now, in preparation for this sermon, I read one funny story that makes a point. Story goes like this. It's a story of a doctor, a lawyer, and a preacher. I don't know if you heard this before. This is the first time I read it. I'm like, whoa, this is really good. So the lawyer, the preacher, and the doctor had a friend who died. And they were all in the bedroom of the hospital room before the friend, uh, before the friend died. Okay? And the friend who was dying said this, Hey guys, when I die, I want to carry $30,000 with me to the grave. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give each of you $10,000. And at my funeral, I want you to come, and I want you to place that money in my casket so, can I, so I can take the money to the grave with me. Then he died. So the doctor, the lawyer, and the preacher came to the funeral. They all leaned over the casket and put something in. And then after the funeral, they got together to talk about their friend who had just died, right? And as they began to discuss, the doctor was the first to confess. The doctor said, well, you know, Bob was my patient for many years, and I know he wanted me to put the $10,000 in the casket, but I'm sure he actually wanted me to keep some of them. So I put $8,000 in the casket, and I kept uh, $2,000 for the unpaid bills while Bob was sick. And seeing the doctor confess, the preacher also confessed. You know, Bob always talked about our church needing a new piano. So I put $7 in the casket, and I kept $3,000 for the new piano that I know Bob would want us to have. And finally, the lawyer also confessed. Well, let me tell you what I did. I kept my $10,000. I also went to the casket and picked up your $7,000 and your $8,000. And then I wrote a check, $30,000, and put it in the casket. Some of you will get that later. The lawyer was shrewd. Because he knew that check was not going anywhere. No one going to cash it in. And the lawyer was the son of this world. The sons of this world are often wiser than the sons of light because they are future-oriented. And that's Jesus' point. If the people of this world, they think about their future on earth in such a way, if they're planning so much for the 70, 80 years they have on this temporary world, how much should Christians plan for the eternity? But the sad reality is that Oftentimes, non-Christian are smarter than Christian in planning for their future. So then how then we should use our resources to plan for the future? Two things that Jesus teaches in this parable. First, we have to use our money to make eternal friends. The term unrighteous wealth in verse 9 is referring to money. Okay? And Jesus said we are to use money to make eternal friends. Why? Because here's what Jesus said, because one day money will fail you. He doesn't say if money fail you. No, no, he says when money fail you. Here's the reality that we must accept 
our cash friend will fail us. And there are three ways money will fail us. Number one, it disappears. I mean, have you ever had that moment when you look at your bank account and you look back at the past three years and you start to realize, hold on a second, where did all my money go? What did I spend it on? Right? It just disappeared like that. Or maybe you put it in a stock market and it drops. Or maybe you lose your job. So that's one way money fails us. But the second way is this. We can have so much money to do everything we want and we still empty. And that is why one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes says this, right? I drank pleasure until there wasn't anything else to drink and I still had no joy. I bought cars until there were no better cars to buy and I got bored. I had women until there wasn't any type of woman that I haven't had and now I was not satisfied. I have everything, but I'm empty and frustrated, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's the second way money fails us. And but the third way, the most important thing is this. You and I are going to die. What good is our money when we die? Because we can't buy our way into heaven. And we can't bring our money into heaven, right? We can't go, hey, Peter, I have something for you. We can't do that. Peter, like, who cares? Your money is meaningless after you die. And your money will fail you. And that is why the best thing to do with money actually is to make eternal investment. Let's talk about investment for a bit. You guys are smart people, okay? You guys pretty much, I think all of you know more about investment than me. I'm a pastor, right? What do I know about investment? But as I know a little bit that the best thing to do with our money is to put it in something that will increase in value. It's better to limit how much money I'm making right now. If it's in the long run, I'm putting my money into something that's going to increase and get more and more valuable, Right? That's common sense. You get that. I know you'd understand that. So when Jesus say your cash will fail you, Jesus is saying this, let me give you an important perspective about money. There's no such thing as good investment in this world because there's nothing in this world, no asset that you can put your money on that will last. Absolutely nothing. So send your money forward to something that will literally last forever. Put your money into the eternal dwelling. Spend your money in such a way that bring people to God. Build the kingdom of God. Do something that you can never lose. And this is what Jesus is saying. See, your money, my money, will have to go somewhere. It either go to, to, to this temporary world or the eternal kingdom of God. And Jesus said the proper use of money is to make eternal friends. What does it mean? Jesus is referring to people who will call us friend in God's kingdom. There will be people who come to know God because we use our money wisely and they will welcome us into eternal dwelling. That's investment we're making. And once again, let me speak to parents. See, parents, what are you teaching your children about money? Because you can't be in the middle. Because if you don't teach your children about money, the culture will. And you know what the culture tells them? Every day, YOLO. You only live once. 
You have to live for the moment. So you have to spend your money on what makes you happy, right? That's what the culture tells us. If you want that big screen TV, buy it. If you want a better car, go for it. If you want to travel the world, do it. Do what makes you happy. Because ultimately, it's about right now. Spend your money for yourself. You deserve it. Live for the moment. Do what makes you feel good. That's what the culture is telling us every day. Live for the moment. Don't worry about eternity. And don't we do the same? I don't know about you, but whenever I feel like my life is meaningless, have you ever felt that? Do you know what we do? At least this is what I do. I buy things to make me feel better. Anyone else? Like, you know, when I feel like, you know, my life is meaningless, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm like nobody, I get me a better suit. And somehow having that suit makes me feel like my life is meaningful now because I get to wear that suit in the next wedding that I go to. Right? That's the thing that we do. Like, oh, my life is so empty. You know what I'm going to do? iPhone 25. And it works for a week. It does make us feel better because we live in a consumer culture. But Jesus said that's not going to work because it will still fail you. But the opposite extreme is also unhealthy. See, most of us, we have black hair, right? So I'm assuming that most of us, we grew up in Asian Chinese family. And we have Chinese Asian parents. Do you know what Chinese Asian parents are famous for? Saving money, la. Right? So if you grew up in an Asian family, let me tell you, the number rule, number one rule in life, the most important rule in life is you have to save money. Like salvation is by saving money. That's the, the rule of Asian family, right? Even one dollar different matter. And there's some wisdom to it. I get it. It's important to save money. But at the end of the day, that saving account will still fail you. And that is why Jesus said the best use of money is not to save it, not to spend it, but to invest it in the eternal kingdom of God. So parents, do you live in such a way that you teach your children that eternity is real? Or are you teaching your kids that what matters is right now, they can spend their money on whatever they want, or save it on the piggy bank? Which one? I learned how to be generous from my parents, especially my dad. See, my dad is very quick to give money away to help those in need and to the church. He's one of the most generous people I know, and it rubs on me. From ever since I was young, generosity became my DNA because I see my dad do it. Parents, teach your children from very early age how to use money in the light of eternity. Not only show them, not only teach them, sorry, but show them how you yourself prioritize God and eternity with your money. Because telling them to give offering and seeing you give sacrificially are two different things. What your children need, not only to, to be told, you need to give. What they need is to see you give sacrificially for the kingdom of God. And the second thing Jesus teaches us about money is how to use our money is to be faithful with what God has given us. First Samuel 12. 
One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So listen carefully. What God is looking for is not abundance, but faithfulness. God does not care how much we have. He cares about what, how we use what He has given us. We can have a lot, we can have a little. It doesn't matter. The question is, are we faithful what we have? Because this is what happened. I met many people, right? I met many people say, hey, yours, if God bless my business, if God making me be a billionaire, if my business proposal all works smoothly, if I have more money than I do now, then I will give generously. But it doesn't work that way. Because Jesus say, if you are faithful in very little, you will be faithful in much. But if you are dishonest in very little, you will be dishonest in much. In other words, if we can't be faithful while we make $20 an hour, we will not be faithful when we make two grand an hour. And this is the unbreakable principle of life. What we would do with more is seen in what we do with, with what we have right now. Whatever we do with a little, we'll do with much. And then Jesus takes another step further because it's just say, if you are unfaithful in money, do not expect God to trust you with true riches. In other words, money is not true riches. Money is a test whether God can trust you with true riches. And if you're not faithful in managing what is God, God said, I will not give you what is your own. Jesus is saying this, if I can't trust you with my earthly wealth, which is here today and gone tomorrow, why will I trust you with the true and eternal wealth of God's kingdom? John Piper put it this way. The possession of money in this world is a test run for eternity. Can you pass the test of faithfulness with your money? Do you use it as means of proving the word of God and the joy you have in supporting His cause? Or does the way you use it prove that what you really enjoy is things, not God? Money is a test. The sad reality is the test of money is an area where many Christians fail miserably. See, if we are steward, it means everything we have is not ours, right? We are managing God's possession. It means that we are a financial manager. And if we are a financial manager and we are not using the money the way the owner say we should, do you know what that is? Robbery. Tiffery. Okay, let me show you how it works. Malachi 3, verse 8. If you grew up in church, you know this verse. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contribution. See, in the Old Testament, 
God told the people of Israel to give 10% of their income to God. Okay? If you, know, if you don't grow up in church, you're like, 10%? That's a lot. You're not thinking clearly. Let me put it this way. What if a billionaire comes to you and say, would you manage my money for me? You ask, well, what are the terms? He says this, I want you to invest my money. And every year, you can keep 90% of the returns and just give me 10%. Would you like that job? You will not say, you know what? Let me pray and think about it. No. You will say, where do I sign? That is a good deal. I don't know any job that has that kind of term, but don't you realize that is what God is offering us? Because He's telling us, it's all my money. It's all mine. The riches are all mine. I'm giving it to you. But I only want 10%. You can live on the other 90. Do you think that's a lot? Well, of course not. So Malachi is right in saying, if you don't even give God that 10%, you're not stingy. You're a thief. I know some of what some of you are saying. Some of you are smart, right? Very smart. Because you grew up in the church. Yes, tithing is not in the New Testament. That is an Old Testament concept. And you're right. We don't find the command to tithe in the New Testament. You're like, woohoo! Hold on a second. But let me ask you this Are the standards for believers in the New Testament higher or lower than the standards in the Old Testament? Do the believers in the New Testament receive less grace, less benefit, less revelation from God, or more? Of course, more. Therefore, the standards are higher. It means that if we can't even give God 10% of our money, we are not faithful with what God has given to us. Because the truth tells us, the Bible tells us that God not only deserves 10%, of what we have. He deserves 100%. We can't do whatever we want because it is not our money. And do you know why it's very hard for us to give generously? You know why it's really, really hard for us to give money away generously? Because we still think it is my money. But once we realize it's not my money, let me tell you, giving generously gets easier. Because giving away someone else's money is a lot of fun, right? If my dad gave me $10,000 to give it away, I'm like, sure, I will easily because it's not my money. And that's what God is saying. It's not your money. It's God's money and He trusted for you to be a good steward. And that's how God wants us to think about money. We are called to be faithful with what God has given us. Which led me to my last point, our master. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's say the last sentence together. One, two, three. You cannot serve God and money. And this is very interesting because 
This is the only time in the Bible that Jesus compares himself to something or someone else. And he does not say you cannot serve God and Satan. He does not say that. He said you cannot serve God and money. In other words, we must make a choice. There's no middle ground here. We either use God to serve money or we use money to serve God. Question is, which one? Who is the master of our heart? And this is why Jesus talked a lot about money, not that he hates money. He's the one who gave it to us. But Jesus knows the misuse of money is extremely dangerous because Jesus does not want money to be our master. Money is a very good servant, but a terrible master. But temptation to make money our master is extremely strong. Because with money, think about it, with money, we can get whatever we desire. See, money is incredibly good, but incredibly dangerous at the same time. You know this. There's something about money that makes us feel self-sufficient, isn't it? Isn't that true? Like when you have a lot of money in the bank, when you look at those numbers in your saving account, somehow when you think about 2024, you feel secure. You feel like no matter what happens, I'll be okay because I have a fat bank account. You feel like because of your bank account, you are in control of your life. But it only takes a single phone call to prove you wrong. And isn't that true that money also makes you feel powerful? Like when you have a lot of money, for whatever reason, you feel like your word matters more. Like you, you might not even know anything about politics or church, but you feel like because of your fat bank account, people have to listen to you. Isn't that true? You feel like you're the smartest person in the room because of money. And not only that, but money can give you comfort of life. You want to go to Japan? You want to go to Hawaii? You want to buy a new suit? You want to buy a new car? Comfort. And of course, money wins you approval of people. Do you, you realize that? When you have a lot of money, people tend to flock around you. When you're poor, no one wants to be with you. Why? That's the power of money. Because money essentially fits all our core idol. Power, comfort, approval, and control. All of them you can gain by having money. And because of it, it is very easy for us to be addicted to money. Money makes you an addict. It's fact. It is fact. The more money you make, the, more, the less percentage you give away. One day, a man come to his pastor and say, Pastor, pastor, pastor. When I was making $50,000 a year, I would give generously to God. I gave 20% of my income. But now that I'm making $500,000, $500,000, $500, it's really hard for me to give 10% of my income to God. Would you pray for me? The pastor said, let's pray. God, would you please take this, would you please take this brother back to $50,000 a year so he can start giving generously again? fact, you get richer, but you feel poorer at the same time. Jesus is clear. You can't serve God and money. 
And here's the problem. Jesus say, you cannot. But deep inside our heart, we say, I can make it work. I can do both. And what's smart, what's so deceiving about our heart is we Christianize them in such a way that we could look like we're serving God, right? So we think like, you know what, God, I want to be successful for the glory of God. I want to be extremely rich so I can buy building for Rock Sydney Church. I want to make a lot of money so I can create, what, orphanages. Well, yes and okay, do that. But listen, if you are chasing riches, sorry, if you are chasing Jesus so that you'll be rich, you are not chasing Jesus. You are chasing riches using Jesus. And it ain't going to work. That's why Jesus make it clear. You got to choose God. Or money. And you can't be a good steward unless you master your money. So the question is, how? How can we master our money? And I end with this. The only way to master money is we have to see the worthlessness of money and the true word of Jesus. That's the only way. Friends, money cannot give you what you truly desire, but Jesus can. See, money lies to you and tells you that you can have significance and security that you deeply long for, but they lie because money will never, never give their life for you. Money as a master will only enslave you because why? Because money will tell you, you need more, you need more, you need more, and you will never feel enough and money will choke you to death. That's having money as your master. But Jesus is different because Jesus is the only master willing to die for us to give us the significance and the security we desire. See, Jesus is the only master whom if we serve him, he will satisfy us and if we fail him, he will forgive us. Think about the gospel for a second. Jesus is the owner of the universe. He was extremely rich. He owned heaven and earth, the sun, moon, everything belonged to him, and he created everything. He was lavish in glory, majesty, and perfection, and he had no need whatsoever. So Jesus had all the riches in the universe, but the Bible tells us, and yet he became poor. He left his glory, and he walked 33 years old, 33 years as a man who did not possess anything. So what we see in Jesus was the richest person in the universe who became the poorest of criminals. Why? The Bible tells us why. He did it for you. He did it for me. For our sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, we might become rich. So Jesus is the only master who emptied himself of all his money to turn enemies into friends. Jesus is the only faithful steward who used all his wealth to make friends for himself in the eternal dwelling. And the cost to turn enemies into friends is his death on the cross. That's what Jesus did for us. It cost Jesus everything to make us his eternal friend. That is the true word of Jesus. Now the question is, do you see that? 
Do you see that your master giving up everything so that you and I might become his eternal friends? Because if you see it, if you see that beauty, that beauty will enable you to have Jesus as your master so that you can master your money. So today, as we close the year, here's the thing. One day, we will have to give account to God on how we steward His gift. The question is, how are we using His gift? And if there's thing that we need to do or change or give away for us to be good stewards, what is it? And I pray that today as you hear the sermon, I pray that you hear God clearly say to you, what is it that about your life that needs to be changed so that we may enter 2024 and live our life with eternity in mind. That's how to be shrewd with your money. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for we have a faithful God who not only tell us what to do with our money, and yet you exemplify it for us, Lord. You show it you give everything away. You left your glory, your riches behind in order to make us your eternal friends. Thank you, Lord, for doing that for us. And I pray, Lord, as we continue to behold that glory, may we become a good steward who live our life, not for our own sake, not for what we want and what we desire, but we remember that we are stewards of your gift. And may we live with eternity in mind. I pray that you continue to work in our heart, Lord. What changes that we need to make in how we use our money? What changes do we need to make in how we live our life? I pray, Lord, that we remind ourselves. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you continue to remind our heart that everything we are, everything we have is yours. And may we use it for your sake and your glory, Lord. And in Jesus Christ's mighty name we pray.